Welcome to the Ex-Millennial Man Podcast, podcastforseedsing.com. I am your host, Artie Kulik, and with me here after watching the greatest musical of all time is runner-up on Jeopardy and knower of all things tennis. That's Tina. How are you today, Tina? I'm very well, thank you. So like I said, you guys need to go check out First Watch, Rewatch. Knower of some things, Yes. (laughs) We'll be releasing that on this regular feed, and then also it's going to have its own feed starting August 1st, so go check that out. But you're here because Wimbledon is all done. (laughs) Yep. Somebody said that to me the other day. (laughs) I probably said it to you a lot early on. (laughs) The greatest tennis tournament of all mankind because it's on grass, which is stupid. It's the, I mean, I don't mm, think it's stupid uh, that it's on grass. There are a lot of other things about it that are too it, precious. Well, it wasn't like, half, wasn't all of tennis on grass, and now it's like, well, we're well, traditional I'm, one. I mean, apparently, there was a game called tennis, like, back in the Middle Ages, where, or mid, mid, bleh, medieval times, or Renaissance times, or somewhere around there. There was a game called tennis, which is nothing like what we think it is today, and then Somebody, I don't know if it was actual English or if it was like the Franco-English, invented a game called lawn tennis, yeah. which then evolved into a Lord the Buckminster sport we know tennis. And Anyways, the one of the four majors, yep. the the most pretentious and idiotic one, in my opinion. Well, not the tennis <laughs> itself, but all the pomp and circumstance around it is often a little. Like I said, a little too precious by half, but... Well, I want to get directly to the point, because there is obviously a massive, massive story that came out of this one, and it was about the, I think, the the person who is the greatest tennis player of all time, of all mankind, Carlos Alcaraz, beat up some old dude to win the title, <laughs> and everybody's talking about it. Correct me where I'm wrong. This was... I mean, people have talked about it as a passing of the torch or passing of the baton, and I don't like that analogy because you pass torches and batons. This is like somebody holding on to something and, and somebody ripping it away from them. Carlos Alcaraz, or as Daniil Medvedev called him once, the famous Carlos Alcaraz, won he, Wimbledon. He is that. He won Wimbledon. And, and he, I he, told, he did it the hard way, too. He beat Novak Djokovic in five sets, and that. The Friday before the final, you were telling me Carlos Alcaraz isn't that good and he's overrated. And I said, I said, what has he done? That I said he won the U.S. Open and he's number one. With Djokovic wasn't in that tournament. <laughs> so does that mean that you thought Medvedev was better than Alcaraz? Yes. Because he beat Djokovic? Sure. Okay. I hadn't thought about it, but yes, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. And I told you that. Two days before the final, I said, Alcaraz, Djokovic is the best player ever, but Alcaraz is better than everybody else, like clearly better than everybody else. Number three player in the world is Daniil Medvedev, and Alcaraz is clearly better than him, right? And I said, I... I said at the time, I said, I don't think Alcaraz will win, but I give him like a 30% shot to win. And I think he'll win at least a set. Now, IBM, chalk one up for IBM. Because before the match, IBM said that Alcaraz had a 55% chance to win. And the McEnroe brothers and Chris Fowler laughed at that graphic when it came up. So big win for IBM, too. They've been, uh, I don't really want to say it, but I'm going to. They've been doing strange things with their computers for a long, long time. But okay, this is what I'm going to say. In my defense is, yes, I know. I asked you that day, (laughs) have you ever seen him play? And you said no. Mm -hmm. 
Because I. So why do you know more about it than I do? Because it's for, gosh, going on over a year now. He's the number one player everybody talks about. He won Akansa. the U.S. Open. Novak Djokovic. He won Indian Wells. <laughs> Novak Djokovic. He won. <laughs> is more titles than any man. More Grand Slam titles. Yes, in any man in history. Jim, I think Jimmy Connors still has more okay. titles than anybody. And Djokovic, he went through this tournament with ease and everybody kept talking about Alcaraz. And then the last time Djokovic and Alcaraz played wasn't much of a match. It was for two sets. Uh, and then the moment got to Alcaraz because he's still young. And again, you're 20 years old. You look across the net and you see Novak Djokovic, who already has 22 Grand Slam titles and is about to win his 23rd. Yeah, he he froze. He choked. He, I mean, he cramped up and it, I think it was a mentally induced full body cramp. And I told you, though, that I didn't think that would happen again. Being the greatest player ever, though, you don't do that. And my point was... Who said he's the greatest player if, ever? If you just go to general, like, Twitter thing, he's the only person anybody talked about. Yeah, because what is there left to say about Djokovic? He's the best player ever? Yeah, but everything that anybody has to say about Novak Djokovic has already been said. Okay, so what I was saying, I will give it up now because Alcaraz had to go... Alcaraz had to go to... To Djokovic. Now, if Djokovic had won that match, he would be tied with Federer for most ever men's singles titles at Wimbledon. Federer has eight. Djokovic had seven. Novak Djokovic had not lost at Wimbledon since 2016. He had not lost on center court since 2013 when Andy Murray beat him in the final. Well, he's lost now. (laughs) So, And that's what I... Again, first match in 10 years years that he has lost on center court well and that's what i'm going to give to alcaraz this wasn't a situation like with medvedev where he didn't have to play djokovic in the final djokovic was killing ball kids and had to be removed medvedev from the... played djokovic in that final oh that's uh, who am i thinking of who's the other one that's You're thinking won? of dominic team. okay team okay yeah. so yes medvedev has beaten him and but again that's the only title he's had and has he even played in a final since then he's been in th- Three total finals. And all of them, the two that he lost went five sets, both with Nadal, actually. Okay. With Alcaraz, he had to play Djokovic, who was top of his game. It was, Djokovic went up big in the first set, kind of blew him out. Yeah, 6-1. I remember thinking that first set was was 6-1 set. Djokovic was up five love at one point. I mean, Alcaraz was on the verge of getting bageled and instead got the gentleman's bagel, right? Mm -hmm. And held serve when he was serving at love five and got the sympathy applause from the crowd, which, ouch. The thing that sets, there's a couple of things that set Carlos Alcaraz apart, and we can get into those later. But the thing that he has impressed me with the most, and I saw it. He played a five-setter against Tsitsipas at the 2021 U.S. Open. I think I talked about it when we did the U.S. Open recap that year, that I was amazed at how calm he stayed closing it out, right? And that's not, I mean, you can get mental coaches and stuff like that, and eventually we'll talk about the women's final and Mm -hmm. we'll get there. But the way he was able to stay calm and focused and not panicked, especially after what happened at Roland Garros with the cramping. So impressive for a 20-year-old. So impressed. So he regrouped, right? Got himself on serve in the second set. We joke about how 
Djokovic's nickname is Tiebreakovic because the guy doesn't lose tiebreakers. He went through all of Roland Garros, didn't make an unforced error in a tiebreaker. No unforced errors in a tiebreaker at Roland Garros because he just doesn't lose tiebreakers. So I'm thinking, oh, it's six all. Djokovic has got it set. He's going to be up two sets. Going to be a tall order for the kid to come back at this point. Because at six all, you just assume that Djokovic has won the set. Ask Roger Federer whether or not Novak Djokovic loses tiebreakers. And Djokovic made, dumped a couple of like kind of routine rally balls into the net in that tiebreaker. That's not Djokovic choking. That's Djokovic feeling the pressure that Alcaraz was putting on him by how, if I played you, I wouldn't make any unforced errors. Mm -hmm. But if I play somebody who's slightly better than me, I'm going to make a lot because my margin for error is that much smaller. So Djokovic is going for a lot in these points. And so he winds up making unforced errors, but he's going for a lot because if he knows that if he doesn't, Alcaraz is going to punish him for it. Right. And Alcaraz won that tiebreaker. Djokovic had a set point in that tiebreaker and dumped a backhand into the net. And not like a tough backhand, right? Mm -hmm. But just went for too much on it, dumped it straight into the net. Alcaraz won that set, right? And then let's talk about the third set for a minute. The fifth game of that set, Djokovic serving down one three. So he's already down a break, Djokovic. And that set goes to 14 deuces. 14 deuces. Alcaraz, that fifth game at 1-3, goes to 14 deuces. Alcaraz has seven break points, finally converts on the seventh one. That game was 27 minutes long. The first set was 34 minutes, right? 27. And it's one of those, and again, not at that level, but I've played a match where I've gone deuce-add, deuce-add with people for a long time, four, five, six deuces. And you start to realize that whoever loses that game, it's going to be an emotional blow to whoever loses that game, right? And so like I said, never done it on center court, but I've done it before where I've been on the winning end of that and I've been on the losing end of those long of those long do sad games. And it can be a lot to sort of emotionally recover from if you lose it. So Djokovic finally lost it. it was down 1-4. You could sort of tell that he was just letting the set go at that point. I think I said that to you. I think he's just letting the set go, and I, I don't fault him for that. I think that's fine. I think nobody manages a five-set match better than Novak Djokovic. And I think he just let it go because he knew he wasn't emotionally in a place to come back and dig himself out of a 1-4 hole after that. And it was going to take a lot of energy and a lot out of him to even make that set competitive. So I think he, I, I do think he just let it go and said, I can win the next two sets. Comes back. Wins the next set. We're going to five. And at this point, I think I told you, I think Djokovic is going to win it. Djokovic goes down a break in the middle of the fifth set. I still thought Djokovic was going to win because I remember Alexander Zverev being up on Dominic team in that U.S. Open final we were talking about in 2020, where he was serving for it at 5-3. And I said, he's not going to win this match. Because Zverev's going to choke and he tanked on his serve, he dropped serve. And usually when you're in that position, you want the insurance break. You want to have two breaks so you can blow one of them. And you know that Djokovic knows that you're nervous. And you know this is the best returner who has ever played the game is going to try and break your serve, serving for it at 5-4. And Alcaraz 
on the first point of that last game, played a really ill-advised drop shot. He was just tight. Stuff like touch, thats that goes when you get nervous. And played this incredibly ill-advised drop shot to go down love 15. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Here's where Djokovic makes his move. Next point, Alcaraz played another drop shot, brought Djokovic in, hit a perfect lob right over his head. Just cat and mouse. Alcaraz didn't lose another point and served it out and won. And I mean, again, just the mental toughness that it takes to just be calm and be focused and execute your game plan and finish it. It's not something a lot of young players have. It's something none of the young players have except him. And then I think that's the key to it. I mean, it's not just that. He's also faster than everybody else. Hits better touch than almost everybody else. He hits harder. He has the ability to hit harder than almost everybody else. I said, you know, what's the tough thing about playing Alcaraz is that he can blast a 110 mile an hour forehand at you and then on and push you way back in the court and the very next ball, just feather a drop shot right over the over the net. It's hard to defend yeah. against that. And it's hard to hit one by him because he's so fast. So again, he has the kind of hard skills to be a great tennis player. But champions are made in the brain. Mm-hmm. And he has it up there. Well, no, that's what I was saying. He is young <laughs> and now he's won two titles and one of them is against Djokovic on a court. That Djokovic owns um, for the last decade. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say I am more of a believer now because you have to slay the dragon. And he did. So remember I said I was doing some Wikipedia research? Mm -hmm. Because something about this whole thing reminded me of Graf Navratilova. You want to talk about torch ripping or torch passing? In 1987, Graf and Navratilova played three major finals. Roland Garros... Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And Graf only won one of them. That was 1987. You know what happened in 1988. For the listeners that don't know, 1988 was the year that Steffi Graf won all four slams and the Olympics. Alcaraz has that kind of talent. I'm not saying he's going to do that. He's still got to contend with Novak Djokovic for the next couple of years, right? But he beat him. He beat him. It beat him. In, again, when, when I say Alcaraz, he did it the hard way, it wasn't the situation where he was just hot and beat him in straight sets. He beat four top 10 players to do it. He beat Sinner. He beat Medvedev. <laughs> I mean, he didn't beat Sinner. Sorry. He beat Runa. He beat Medvedev. These are good players. Daniel Medvedev, I think, is legit the third best player on tour. And he's not. I saw, I've seen Medvedev and Alcaraz play twice this year. One was the final in Indian Wells. And once was the semifinal at Wimbledon. And both of those matches were embarrassing for Medvedev. And again, Medvedev is a guy that goes that can go toe-to-toe in five sets with Nadal on a hard court. Nadal's a very good hard court player. And again, just he looked like Alcaraz just pulled his pants down. It was kind of embarrassed. I was embarrassed for him. And again, I think he is legitimately the third best player in the world. This kid is something. Okay. And the big question mark around him is that I don't know if he's fragile. Well, we will see. But before we move away but from Novak Djokovic, you know, Andy Roddick used to make jokes about him having bird flu mm-hmm. and anthrax because he would withdraw from matches so much. So you never know. Yeah. Well, before we get away. Also, just a quick note Alcaraz. So a couple of quick things that, or a couple of things that kind of came out. Before the 2019 Wimbledon final, where Federer lost to Djokovic in five after having two match points on his own serve, 
before that, Federer wanted to hit with somebody and that somebody was coaching a young player and said, oh, go ahead and hit with this kid instead. And that kid was Carlos Alcaraz. And the person that Federer had wanted to hit with was Juan Carlos Ferrero. Juan Carlos Ferrero was always one of my favorite players 20 years ago. Won the French Open, got to the final at the U.S. Open, was a really good player. But he and Carlos Alcaraz, he's Carlos Alcaraz's coach. And they seem to have like such a warm, supportive relationship. And Ferrero was holding back tears at the end of it. And I'm I'm actually really happy for him because he seems like a nice guy. Well, and Djokovic in his, sorry, That's I know okay. I'm still going on. The other thing Djokovic said during his uh, runner-up speech, Djokovic was very gracious about the whole thing. And he said, I knew that you were going to be a problem for me on clay and hard courts. I didn't know that you were going to be a problem for me yet on grass, basically. I'm paraphrasing, but that is essentially what he said, basically saying, you're better than I even thought you were. Part of me thinks, is there a point to talk about anybody else because it's just going to be Alcaraz and Djokovic for like two years of our lives? But let's talk about other people. Yeah. Were there any other matches of note? I know, uh, what's it? I already forgot oh, his name. The Andy Murray. No, the one dude who's been the runner-up three times. Loves the weekend. Oh, Casper <laughs> Yeah, wasn't he out in the first round? Yeah, but he didn't play any warm-up tournaments, <laughs> which again... Yeah. I mean, Djokovic can do that. Yeah. No. Alcaraz played Queens at one Queens. But yeah, he, Casper Root also said, grass is for golf. Yeah. Hey, I don't disagree. <laughs> right. But Andy Murray. Andy Murray, this was kind of his last hurrah, maybe last hurrah. I mean, he hasn't announced that he's retiring or anything, but he skipped the entire clay season to get ready for this. He was playing grass court challengers and winning them in an effort to be seated at Wimbledon because top 32 get seated. And the problem was he won these two grass court challenger tournaments back to back challengers like the minor leagues and then entered the draw at Queens, ran into Alex de Menor in the first round, got bounced in the first round at Queens. If he had made the quarterfinals at Queens, he would have been seated. He was close to being seated. And he had he had a tough run of it, ran into uh, Stefano Tsitsipas in the second round. Tsitsipas, who had already played a knockdown drag out with Dominic Team, who I mean, that's a first round match. It's a Possum team, <laughs> but which was a great match. I saw the last set of it. It was incredible. But he was he he played a five setter over two days because of the stupid Wimbledon curfew that they have to stop at eleven. So they only got through three sets on the first day. Murray and Sitsipas. Murray was up two sets and was playing really really well and couldn't quite close it out against Sitsipas. And I I think that was. I think he felt like he was playing well enough to make it into the round of 16 or quarters. And this was, I think I told you, this is the best I've seen Andy Murray play in a long time. But this is the best I've ever seen Sitsipas play, especially on grass. And hats off to him. And then kind of end off here with the the Americans. I know the American men had a handful of people who went pretty far. and. The one who went the furthest is not, not the one really. anybody I was mean, talking about. Taylor Fritz was out early. Oh, Tiafo didn't. I thought stick they made second for... week, didn't he? Huh. Oh, okay. But um, I know there's one American that went way further yeah, than we thought. So the story of the tournament, other than Carlos Alcaraz, is a 27, 28 year old guy from Georgia Tech alum named Christopher Eubanks. Chris Eubanks has been toiling on the challenger circuit for a long time. I follow him on Twitter. He's always talking about how his luggage got lost in Australia, stuff like that. Nobody had heard of him, right? <laughs> right? 
Very few people had probably heard of Christopher Eubanks before the spring. And then he did pretty well in Australia. He did okay at, during the spring. I think he qualified at Wimbledon, if I'm not mistaken. He made it to, I want to say maybe the quarterfinals. He made it to the quarterfinals. I think he beat Sitsipas in the fourth round. Made it to the quarterfinals. And I'm really happy for him because he seems like such a great guy. He's got an incredible serve. He's got this booming back, the one hand, beautiful one hand or backhand that just kind of rips on the court. I think the grass court surface really suits him for the fast surface. And I mean, just definitely a story of the tournament. I'm really happy for him because it means he's not going to have to qualify. You know, he'll probably even get into the main draw. He'll definitely get in the main draw at the U.S. Open, probably the main draw in Canada and Cincinnati as well without having to qualify. So good for him. And then there were all the jokes about you know the EU banks EU banks <laughs> calling in loans from <laughs> from from Greek man after he beat Sitsipas. <laughs> well, it's uh I, I guess to sum up the men's tournament is the king is dead, long live the king. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Like I said, it, it, I was thinking about Graf Navratilova. <laughs> Hello all, this is RD. I wanted to talk to you guys about another podcast that I do work on called High Heels in Politics. It's hosted by Marianne Christie, who I work with here in Southwest Ohio. And Marianne, she interviews a lot of influential people. In Ohio, she's interviewed uh, a lot of political people that are influential. But for those of you outside of this state, she's also interviewed people like Susie Chapstick Chaffee, a former Olympic skier who was the face of Chapstick for the 1970s and 1980s. It's really interesting to listen to that one because She talks about her struggles as a woman in the Olympics, but then how she used her celebrity and her attractiveness in order to get more rights for amateur athletes, which led us today to things like the NIL. Also, Susie was very instrumental in Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of. But it's not all just seriousness. Uh, Marianne has also interviewed the Naked Cowboy, the New York City icon that's been out there. Simon Lease, who a lot of you may know if you've ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint, he was the guy that arrested Larry Flint. He also arrested Jerry Springer when Jerry Springer was a member of the Cincinnati City Council here. So I encourage you guys go to Spotify, Google, Apple, go search High Heels in Politics, follow, subscribe the show. Marianne comes out with a new one every week, and it's an incredibly great conversation. And if you're interested or know anybody that may be on high heels in politics, just go to the contact page and talk to us. So let's get back to the conversation. Okay, Tina, if Djokovic had just rolled over Alcaraz and added to his titles, it would be, oh, okay, Djokovic is just better. These guys have to catch up. And the top story of this entire tournament would have been the woman's champion. Yeah. So, I mean, you agree. Yeah. 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 I'm okay. I'm going to say this slow. And I know I'm an embarrassment to my people since I can't speak their language, but it's. uh, She's not Polish. Yeah, but Eastern European. Okay. (laughs) Fine. But Vondrosova. Yeah. Okay. Who was. She wasn't seated. No. And she went and I think she beat Sviantek somewhere along the line. No, Svitolini beat Sviantek. Oh, okay. So. And then who, uh, who's, I can't remember off the top of my head, who's oh, the no. number two person. Yeah, she beat Svitolina. Uh, she, she did beat Svitolina in the finals. Yeah. Vondrosova did, but yeah. yeah in, the, in the semifinals, yeah. 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 And, but the, the kind of story, the, the 
person who was it, it was her revenge tour was on Jabir. Yeah. And there is an And I, it was a revenge tour. Well, and there's <laughs> iconic iconic photo of her holding up her runner-up trophy just ever had buried it's, into her it's, it's a very upsetting <laughs> trophy it's a very it like so here's how upset i was by the whole thing and again none of this takes anything away from marquette of androsha who played a great match and and is a good she, player she's a champion she's a she's major a champion, champion. <laughs> yeah. and and again this is not her first rodeo right 2019 she made the uh the french open final loss to ash barty right so this was not her first major final either. But Angebur was on a tear last year, made the Wimbledon final, was up a set on Rebecca in the last year and lost. Really tough loss. Made the uh, final at the U.S. Open. Lost to Shriantek. People expected her to, to win Wimbledon last year when they didn't really expect her to win the U.S. Open against Shriantek. And then came back and was like, all right, I got it. Wimbledon this year. And was playing really well. Her her game is very well suited to grass. Doesn't have all the tools that Alcaraz has, but has a lot of variety. Has that nasty drop shot. Very effective game for grass. And she had a murderer's row in front of her, right? She ha- She beat four Grand Slam champions on the way to the final. She beat Bianca Andreescu early on, who I saw that match. She was playing well dismantled Petra Kvitova, two-time Wimbledon champion, in the round of 16. In the quarters, played the person that denied her the Wimbledon title last year, Elena Rybakina, who, Elena Rybakina is a very, very good player and was playing pretty well. And Jabir lost the first set of that match in a tiebreaker, stayed mentally tough, regrouped, came back, won the next two sets. In the semifinal, she's got to play Arena Sabalenka, who's like who's basically like playing Rabakina with not as good a serve, but a better net game, <laughs> right? Sablenka, number two player in the world, had a chance to be number one if she had made the final. Australian Open champion, lost the first set in tiebreaker, or lost first set in that match too. Came back and won it in three, into the final. And just didn't didn't show up for the final. Again, I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from Marquette Vondrosheva. She She played a great match. Stayed really calm, stayed really focused. Again, it's champions are made in the head, right? And was able to execute it and execute her game plan and close it out. But the Onjabur that that played Rebecca and Sabalenka, that version of Onjabur did not show up for this final at all. From the moment she stepped on the court, she looked tight. They said that she had been waiting. They have that little holding area at the bottom of the stairs at Wimbledon before they walk out onto center court. And they said she'd been down there for like 40 minutes just waiting to come out on the court. And I'm like, ooh, I, I mean, just, I mean, at some point, I think you want it too much, right? That it's so much in your head and you can't execute it. And when things don't start to go your way, you kind of panic. And she didn't do that. I'm psychoanalyzing her now. She didn't do that in the quarterfinals. She didn't do that in the semifinals because there's not so much at stake anymore. But once you get to the final, that's the line that she's yet to cross over is to win that seventh match. She's won six matches three times now and hasn't won that seventh match. And I mean, I think if she had played well and just gotten beaten, it would have been hard to take. But I don't think it would have been as crushing as just she knows she didn't show up. She she knows that she went out there and just 
was so tight and unable to play her brand of fun, creative tennis and execute it. It was so hard to watch that, I mean, I after it was over, I saw that picture of her crying and holding up that stupid plate. And I just kind of stayed off social media for the rest of the day because I'm like, I just can't even, I can't look at that picture again. I just, it, it was it was very, very upsetting. But a couple things. I'm going to throw out some names here. Andy Murray, Yvonne Lendl, Kim Kleisters, first ballot Hall of Famers all. All of them lost their first four major finals. Well, that's got to suck. Yeah. But you know what? Murray won two plus a couple of Olympics in arguably the toughest era ever in men's tennis. Lendl won seven or eight slams. Uh, Kleister's won four, finally. I- Another thing, I mentioned this actually after our French Open show when we were talking about Casper, Casper Root. Nobody has ever made three major finals and not finally won one. I mean, obviously not one of those three, but there's nobody who's been a three-time finalist and has not walked away with a major trophy. So for both of them, maybe they can take heart, right? If you can get to a major final three times, especially on a couple of different surfaces with both, with which both of them have, it means that your tennis is good enough to win. You know what I mean? So that's something. Let's talk for a minute, though, about Marketa Vondrosheva. Yeah, I say, let's. I mean, she she won the whole thing. Czech lefties mm-hmm. do really well at Wimbledon. Well, Czech players in general do really well at Wimbledon. But in the proud tradition of Czech lefties, we've got Martina Navratilova, we've got Petra Kvitova, and now we've got Marketa Vondrosheva. I mean, I saw I saw some crazy stat, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was the percentage the percentage of Czech women that are in the top one hundred on the WTA. It's like. Because Karolina Muhova, who lost the uh, French Open final, also Czech, right? So Marketa Vondrosheva going into this tournament was the seventh ranked Czech woman in the world. Ranked seven among her country women and is now in the top 10. Good well, in the top 10 of all of women's tennis. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I say it sucks if she's in the top, she was in the top 10. <laughs> right. But again, I don't know. Something in the water, right? Especially for women. I mean, Yvonne Lendl was Czech, but he's the... He's the outlier. Right. But the the women are, I mean, you have Yana Novotna, Barbara Krajikova, who won the uh, French Open a couple of years ago, Hanna Monlikova. There's been so many good Czech women. And you, you kind of, uh, Karolina Pliskova, who's made two major finals. I mean, yeah, there's uh, there's just been a lot of good Czech women. So outside of the finals, I know, I know oh, Venus. I was, oh, go ahead. back up for a second. Yeah. Um, well. Also, Marketa Vondrosheva has a whole bunch of tats. And she said she's going to get another one. And she said that her coach told her before Wimbledon that if she won Wimbledon, that he would get a tattoo. So he's got to get a tattoo. <laughs> get a tattoo of the queen, Queen Camilla. Yeah. There was a moment where, because Wimbledon, like I said, precious, they have their royal box. And there was a moment when I was watching and somebody was like, Her Majesty the Queen looking on. I'm like, she's dead. And then I realized they were talking about yeah, Camilla. Because she was really looking up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Hey, I come from a country where we don't... Where world leaders make that joke? Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but there's another couple of really good stories on the women's side. So so Venus, Venus played. Is she like 72 or something? She's 43. But again, I think we talked about this during the French Open show. Venus Williams wants to play. You give her a wild card, you let her play. Drew Alina Svitolina in the first round. And Svitolina we talked about during the French Open podcast was... 
Ukrainian player had a baby in October so coming back on the tour, uh, had been in the top five previously, really good player. I watched a couple of Svitolina's matches in Paris. She played amazingly well for a few rounds. And again, probably not quite match tough at that point, but drew Venus Williams in the first round. And that's the popcorn match for the round, right? Seven-time Wimbledon champion against uh, beloved Ukrainian and new mom and former top five player, Alina Svitolina. I mean, there was a bad moment in the first set where Svitolina or where Venus Williams fell on the grass because it was it was rainy all week and just slippery and humid. But Svitolina not playing the kind of tennis that got her into the top five previously, playing a lot of the same skills, but more aggressively than she has in the past and made it to the semifinals. And then Coco Goff ran into Sophia Kennan in the first or second round. But Kennan also playing well. Yeah, there's uh, uh, Svitolina, as we were talking about, took out Striantec, who seemed like she was starting to learn how to play on grass, but isn't quite there. It was a really, really good tournament on the women's side. I did want to point out that we've had three major finals, six finalists, six different finalists. Wow. Because I... we had the Australian Open with Sabalenka and Rebecca. The French Open was Striantec and Mohova. And this one was Jabur and Tavandrosheva. So which one of them is going to, well, we have eight different finalists. Oh, we'll see. That'd be but something. For I, as much as there isn't parody on the men's side of the tour, yeah. there is a lot of parody on the women's side of the tour. I did want to, you mentioned Coco Goff, and unlike the men, the women have some names, some names that, uh, what, Pagula. Pagula, uh, I think, made the quarters. But they're, I mean, she, I think she did far and away the best. Goff was out early. Pagula um, is consistent. Pagula is nothing if not consistent, okay. right? She's going to play to her ranking. But for the most part, I mean, you're talking about there's all these different women, all these different finalists. It it doesn't seem, again, now that Serena's gone, it doesn't seem there's any women that are that are elevating. And if you're in a time of a lot of parody, you mean American women? Yeah, American women. Yeah. If you are in this time of parody, why are none of them breaking through right yeah, now? Yeah. So I think is Sophia Kennan the last American woman to win a major? I think that's, so. Yeah, that's um, what I think. Yeah. You have people like Kennan, like Stone, Sloan Stevens. These people can make a run, right? Both of those players, I would never be surprised if they went out in the first round, and I would never be surprised if they made the quarterfinals. I mean, Marketa Vondrosova actually might be one of those people, honestly, that they're just, the talent is there. The thing about golf, so golf made the fourth round at Wimbledon as a 15-year-old. Huge, right? Played Venus Williams in the third round. And that was a somewhat sprier Venus Williams at the time and beat her. Goff is talented. Goff is fast. She's got decent serve. She's got a great backhand, really good backhand. But the forehand stinks. The forehand's a liability. And Kennan went after that forehand hard. And that's what everybody knows to do. If you go after the forehand enough, it will break down. And you will start getting a lot of errors out of it. And she needs to fix it. Problem with the tennis calendar, there is no time to take six months off. I mean, you can take six months off, but you will lose all the ranking points from the mandatory tournaments during that time. Your ranking will fall apart, but I, she's not that old. Right. Isn't the she's option 19. to continue to play with the problem and never win instead of taking? I think so. Yeah. And and a lot of people have said this. I didn't make this up. It's, it's well known and she needs to fix it. But in order to fix it, you have to first admit that it's a big problem and she won't admit it publicly, which I don't blame her, but you have to at least admit it to yourself. And hopefully she is because for somebody who was a French Open finalist last year, she's not had great results in the last year. 
for somebody that is as talented as she is. I wanted to end with talking about Alcaraz and Djokovic, because no matter how much I bitch and complain about everybody talking about Car- Carlos Alcaraz, we're going to spend Again, a good 30 minutes. Again, you sound like Daniel Medvedev, <laughs> the famous Carlos Alcaraz. But before we get to that, is there any other stories or anything else out of this tournament? Oh, yeah. So it's baseball season. And the Reds are, well, they're in second, but they're, they have a winning record, which I kid you not, I did not expect. It's amazing. <laughs> but so I've been saying for a long time, I'm a purist about things like the designated hitter rule and about Manfred's man during extra innings. The thing I'm not a purist about is robot ups. Baseball needs robot ups. And, and they have it in like the minor leagues or like strike calling. You yeah, mean? yeah. Yeah. And I know this is a tennis podcast and I'll get back to it. Right. But it drives me crazy when I can see the box and... I see something that is clearly six inches off the plate and it's called a strike. Makes me makes me nuts. And I understand the whole, well, as long as I call it consistently for both pitchers, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. The strike zone is over the plate between the knees and the letters. If it's in there, it's a strike. If it's not, it's a ball. Let's just, if the computer can call it better than the human eye, let's just be done with it. And I want to tell baseball, tennis already went through the stages of grief here, okay? Tennis went to a stupid challenge system, which now requires the players to make decisions about whether or not they think the ball is out. And then they just scrapped it and went completely to electronic lines on every surface but clay, and it works fine. You can argue, well, it's not really accurate. Who cares? It's at least as accurate. And and there's no bias in the computer, right? The computer either thinks the ball's in or thinks it's out. And again, sometimes they show the replay. The players can ask to see the replay, but it's never going to overturn the call. You never have a situation where a line judge calls something out and the chair umpire says, correction, the ball was in, and then they have to replay the point, which is not fair to either player. They call the lines electronically. Baseball needs to call the strike zone electronically, except at freaking Wimbledon where they apparently still have line judges and the challenge system. I mean, it was such a problem that, I mean, I saw so many instances of exactly what I described. Oh, correction, the ball was good. Replay the point. And then there's a question of, in the match point on the Svitolina match, Svitolina hit a ball that skidded off the line I don't think Venus Williams had a shot at that ball, okay? But it skidded off the line. It was called out. Svitolina challenged the call. It was in, match over. Venus was salty because she thinks they should have replayed the point. I disagree. I don't think they replay the point if they think it impacted what you did with the ball. I don't think that impacted I them. understand her point, though. I bet, yeah. She didn't shake hands with the umpire because she was mad. That is not the way that the marquee match of the first round should end, right? It's just not acceptable. Then you have Stefano Tsitsipas using all of his challenges and now he I mean, the whole thing is stupid. We went through this already. We moved to electronic line calling. It's better. Let's just do that. <sighs> also, let's talk about the roof a minute at Wimbledon. Okay. And then I want to talk about the all white, but go ahead. Okay. So they put a roof on at Wimbledon after the 2008 match where it was getting so dark that they almost had to stop playing. Now, obviously, the roof had been planned for the following year. It wasn't that that made them put the roof on. But there's a couple of dumb things about Wimbledon's roof. 
One, the lights are not independent of the roof. They have to close the roof to turn the lights on. This is not the case at the U.S. Open. It's not the case at the Australian Open. It's not the case at the French Open. They could turn the lights on and have the roof open at the same time. Not so Wimbledon. The roof was closed for the women's final, not because it was raining, but because it was windy. And they were concerned that it might rain. And apparently they can't close that rain, that that roof, if it's too windy. So they just closed it preemptively. Which, again, I don't know if it impacted the outcome of the match. But if you claim to be an outdoor tournament, be an outdoor tournament unless it's raining. So there's that. And then also they have the rule that they can't play past 11 p.m. Because... Apparently, the posh people that live around Wimbledon don't want the noise that late. I don't know. It has something to do with like, there's like a local council that ruled that they, once they put the roof on in the lights, said that they passed a law that they can't play past 11 at Wimbledon. In January, we talked about Andy Murray finishing a match at 4 a.m. That is also not an ideal situation. But they scheduled match play on center court to start at 1.30 p.m. All the other slams start their day sessions at 11. So you get your matches. You know you have a hard curfew at 11. You put two men's matches and a women's match on. You might have 13 sets of tennis. And you have nine and a half hours in which to play them. Or sorry, nine and a half hours. Yeah, nine and a half hours in which to play them. It's not enough time to play potentially 13 sets of tennis. So. So many of the matches got carried over to the following day, which is so stupid. Just start at 11. But apparently the reason they don't start at 11 is because the fancy people, the debentures, which is like season ticket holders for Wimbledon, but you have to buy five years worth of season tickets at a time. And apparently they're very, very expensive. And apparently those people have to have their lunch first before play starts. It's it's just the, the, it, it makes me glad to be from the colonies. Yeah, it, look, it's like I said, I, I've always hated the stupid all white. And did I hear something like they had the soles of their shoes had to be white or something like they that? They do now. They didn't used to be. That's they've actually gotten stricter on the all white rule. Except now, women can wear colored yeah. underwear because you know, yes, because they might have periods, yes. and don't have to worry about staining that. But I guess, I mean, this is every time we come to this tournament and it sucks because there's been some iconic matches played at this tournament, but we're so, it's so up its butt of dumbass British royalty and all this stuff that it's, it's, it's just so lame. It really is. Whereas the French are like, we cut all those people's heads off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I mean. Australia's like, you're just going to have to play in 150 degree heat. And, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's just the way it <laughs> and is. And the U.S. Open is like, oh, Jets from LaGuardia are yeah, going yeah. <laughs> Here in Cincinnati, we have the Kings Island that's fireworks right. interrupting people. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, I said I wanted to end here on Carlos Alcaraz. You asked me how many does he have to win for me to give respect to him. And I said 25. So he's 23 away. <laughs> he's, he's getting there. But I, I want to ask you this because look, this is this is his moment. I think in a lot of ways, like when Nadal beat Federer in that epic Wimbledon match, it was the first time we thought, okay, this guy might not just be a French Open dude. Yeah. This guy might be something great. And and think about this: 
Alcaraz is much younger oh, yeah, that's, I know. than Nadal. He's much was. younger than all of them. All of who? Didn't Federer win his first one at like 23? 21, I think. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. But Nadal won his first major at 19. Yeah, but uh, outside of those French Opens. So. But he was... Because didn't he win like four straight French Opens yeah, before? Yeah. yeah. But what we forget, the 2006 and 2007 finals were Federer and yes, Nadal, yes. right? Just, but he had to win. He had to beat Federer. And he did. Yeah. And he did it the hard way. So Alcaraz is... The hardest way, some well, would say. That's the greatest match yeah. that's ever been played. So Alcaraz, he did it. He knows he can do it. He's got all the talent in the world. Now he's got that mojo behind him. And I mean, some of us already thought he was that good. I'd say I'm putting myself in there. <laughs> there, there are some of these younger guys that maybe, like you said, with Casper, it's Casper Rude, right? I keep... Yeah. It's, he's... Nobody's ever lost three finals and not won a title so he probably has nobody's ever made or made made, yeah Yeah. and i guess so maybe these there's there's a group of them that maybe are going to step up and they're going to have to challenge alcaraz here's my question to you does djokovic ever win another major title i don't know like i mean i didn't think 2017 you never know when somebody's last one you know i i didn't i didn't know that 2017 Australia was going to be Serena's last. I didn't know that 2018 Wimbledon, or sorry, I didn't know that 2018 Australia was going to be Federer's last. And that, that was the last title they won, though, because that was Federer the last major made another, won. made a couple more, I think. He made uh, one more. Okay. And Serena made some more. Four more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Four more finals. And Federer made one more. Nadal, think about, think about this time last year. Rafael Nadal had not lost a Grand Slam match. Because he had won the Australian Open, he had won the French Open, and he had made the semis at Wimbledon and withdrawn. He didn't lose, right? So this time last year, Rafael Nadal was 19-0 and in Grand Slam matches. And, and he, now, I don't know if Nadal will ever win another major. You just, you don't, you don't know. You just don't know. And Djokovic, I think, will. I actually think he will come out hungrier than ever before. Oh, I think he's going to vaporize everybody in the U.S. Open. Yeah, but the U.S. Open is kind of a weird turn for yeah. somebody who's as good on hard courts and who dominates in Australia. He's only ever won three U.S. Open titles. Hmm. And I think he's lost six or something, which is a really bad finals record for a guy who has a pretty good win yeah, percentage yeah. in finals. So he's... I mean, I don't remember exactly how many he's lost, but he's lost a lot of U.S. Open finals. He's lost more than he's won. Something about that tournament doesn't quite agree with him. And and we'll see. The thing about Alcaraz, though, the thing about New York is it's loud. It's noisy. It's very, it's very, it's very New York. They, they, they play past 11. <laughs> well, they do in Australia, too. They play yeah. until 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But it is. It's, it's loud. It's noisy. It's hot. It's humid. And it's very, very New York, just like Wimbledon is very, very London with its poncy gentility. And then the French as the French and the Australian has a bunch of drunk people. New York is is its own thing. But I think Alcaraz likes that. The cool thing about Alcaraz is that he wants to entertain you. He doesn't just want to win the match. He wants you to have fun watching him win the match. Like you can even see it. Like he'll hit an amazing shot, like some amazing drop shot or some like he, he hit an around the net passing shot during this Wimbledon 
that went between the net post and the umpire's chair and managed to not hit the ball kid, right? He does that crap. And then he looks up at the crowd or looks up at Juan Carlos Ferrer like, look what I just did. Like, he's he's entertained by himself, right? So I think he's going to really thrive in that New York environment. Doesn't doesn't actually surprise me that much that that's the one he's won, that that's the one he won coming in. Well, till uh, I'll see you in six weeks. So isn't that about what, what time we have between the U.S. Open and the summit? Yeah, about ten, yeah, more longer than that. Unless we're going to do a Cincinnati recap. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see how exciting it is. <laughs> Could be the last one or one of the last uh, ones. I think they're here for the next three or yeah, four so, years yeah. at least. Well, yeah. That's another topic. So maybe we'll talk about the U.S. Open. People need to find you and get your expertise on Jeopardy. Where are they going to find you? They can find me at Tina Seedsing on Twitter. For now, I haven't gone to Blue Sky or Blue Ski or uh, or what's the Facebook one? Threads. Yeah. Yeah. I need to update all of our stuff. So with all that being said, we thank you for your ears. Anything else that you may use to listen to the Ex-Millennial Man podcast? Remember, we are here every Saturday for free, wherever you find your fine podcasting shows. And... All right, till I'll just lock myself away in my podcast closet till I see you again. Okay. (laughs) All right, talk to you next time. Bye. The Ex-Millennial Man Podcast is a production of SeedSing.com, fully owned by R.D. Kulik & Associates, LLC. Producers Ty Kulik and Ryan Kulik, adequately engineered by Ryan Kulik.